Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. As usual, I'm joined by iOS developer, author, and my co-host, Jake Goodison. Also joining us for this episode is a certified Google developer expert for Android and part of the Android team over at Trello, Huen Dao. Thanks for joining us, Huen. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, um, it's always traditional that we let our uh, panellists jump straight in and take the first 20 minutes. So over to you. What would you like to talk about? I would love to talk about the Android community. And so if, if you're around me long enough or if you've read like some of the, <laughs> some of the things that I've had to write for like biographies for conferences, um, I always like to say that community is one of the favorite parts of my job. And I consider it like half of my job as an Android developer. And I think the Android community is like a really awesome place, not just to like learn, but to get support and just to meet other people who are just absolutely like enthused and passionate about Android and so I, I kind of wanted to give like a good overview of what the Android community looks like, especially for anyone who's out there, you know, learning Android development and they want to meet other Android developers or get some support or just learn more and, and kind of give you an idea of where you can go for that. The backbone of the Android community is meetups. So there are kind of Google sponsored meetups called Google Developer Groups. We call them GDGs for short. And they're basically meetups that are kind of recognized um, by Google. Um, anyone can start a chapter, but usually they're very like local based, and and they're they're literally like all over the world. So like in the U.S., we have like GDG NYC, GDG Denver, GDG like um, Washington D.C., but then you have like GDG London, GDG Bristol, GDG Copenhagen. GDG Medellin, GDG Kyoto, GDG like it's just it's if you look on the develop the Google Developer website, there's 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 a good chance if you're kind of in an area with any kind of big city that there's probably a GDG nearby. And you know, but at, at the same time, while they're they're Google recognized, they're they run pretty independently. The thing that is nice about GDGs is that you know they run independently. They're they're full of passionate people, and Google does kind of help them with certain things. So um, every year, Google likes to ha- um, help GDGs throw what are called DevFests, and DevFests are really large community events where they can have speaker sessions, hackathons, um, study jams, which are like really like focused uh, small study groups, um, code labs, all, all kinds of great activities to kind of, you know, engage the developer community. And Google, you know, will kind of help and, and provide funding for that. But uh, in general, um, GDGs are a great place to meet other people. Um, the thing about GDGs uh, is that they're about Google technology. So it's not always about Android, but the Google Cloud Platform and, and other things like that. So what's interesting is that there's lots of GDGs GDGs everywhere. They're a great resource for Android developers, but a lot of times you'll find that maybe Android developers really want something for them. You know, we're a little bit like one track minded. And a lot of times you'll find, especially in big cities, that you won't just have like a GDG, but you'll have Android focused meetups as well. And and they're, they're in small cities as well, but very, very often in parallel, you'll have along with the GDG, an Android meetup. So for instance, here in Denver, where I live, we have the GDG Denver, but we also have Denver Droids. And in New York, you have GDG NYC, but also the New York Android Developers Meetup. Uh, London, same thing. There's a GDG London, but also there's a London Android group. And even down in Colombia, in Medellin, there's GDG Medellin and Medellin Android. So and it's kind of interesting, like, and again, like, they're, they're focused on Android. So usually you'll get, you know, much more particular, like Android particular subjects and, and mostly just Android developers. But I, and, and, and you might kind of say to yourself, well, isn't that kind of 
are they do they kind of compete but or kind of do they interfere with each other and the answer is actually absolutely no um, at least here in Denver and in my experience uh, with different GDGs and meetups that I've kind of had the pleasure of like attending or even meeting people from, there's a lot of crossover. So people who go to GDGs will also go to the Android meetups and, you know, and a lot of like community events, you know, you'll see, you'll see everyone. So those two are really great places to go. Like if you're interested in Android and you want to meet other people, you want to like hear about cool things. You're, you're, you'll probably be able to find a meetup hopefully somewhere nearby you and, and you should definitely go because that that is like the oasis of like android out in the community so they're, they're definitely like great places to find um, people who care about android and 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 are willing to kind of like do community stuff for it so it's, it's a really great place a lot of the people that you'll meet at both meetups and google developer groups are what are called Google, Google Developer Experts. Google has this program called the, the Google Experts Program. And basically, it's kind of a network, a kind of recognition of people who have expertise in certain Google technologies. And not just like technologies like engineers, but they also recognize people who have expertise in design and marketing and, and like kind of product stuff. Going back to like the meetups, there are a lot of really fantastic Android GDEs. And a lot of times the GDEs will be around meetups and GDEs as well. And basically GDEs, Google Developer Experts, um, are people that have expertise in Android or whatever technology they're an expert in, but that also, um, as a requisite, um, are extremely active in the community that try to share that expertise, that try to go and reach out and, and network with other developers. So it's it's kind of like, yeah, we're ex like, yeah, the, you know, like, quote unquote experts, but also the most important part is just building that community and building that network of, of support um, for um, Android people throughout the world. So um, you'll find GDE speaking at conferences. You'll like be able to read their blogs online. And like I said, they're often, very often, you'll find GDEs um, either running or participating in meetups, working at conferences and helping to organize conferences, or um, working on open source projects and open source libraries that you'll find out there. If there's something cool going on in Android, there's a not bad chance that you might find someone who's a GDE in it. And GDEs are a really great resource, and that's kind of like the whole point of the program is to say, hey, there's this first person who knows a lot about, like, architecture or this person knows a lot about like UI and this person knows a lot about material design and they're meant to be like resources they're meant to be like touch like touch points in the community for you to go and in general like as an Android developer as you're learning they're great people to follow on Twitter um, if you see them at a conference you should go see them talk and you know if you um, like will go to a meetup and you want to like you know and you want to like go say hi to GDE you know like they're great places they're great people to go to go to and just chat with and learn things from kind of like the GDG program GDE is a kind of regional thing so there are GDG, GDEs all over the world so there's plenty in the US there's plenty over like in Europe um, Asia and some in Africa as well and South America so there's just GDEs everywhere and they're just really great people to you know kind of follow and to get a pulse on what's going on in Android but also to kind of like learn from so that's the Google developer experts program um, Can, are these people that are paid by Google or just recognized by Google like how how official or informal is this GDE program so they're, they're not paid by Google they they're more just recognized by Google so there is like an application process and you go through some interviews but basically they're just people recognized by Google as um, people who just know a lot about that technology and who participate. 
So that's basically it. Yeah. We're, um, and, and, and no one in the program is like a Google or anything like that. So we're kind of, okay. we're in the, like GDEs are like independent, but yeah, they are independent of Google. Yeah. The incentive is that if you are a GDE, then that you kind of are recognized and maybe that means you get, I mean, it's like any, anywhere else, right? If you have some level of authority in a particular yeah, domain. Yeah. I mean, so this, this kind of comes up that. a lot. Um, yeah. Like, like, like what's like kind of like as a GDE, like what's the kind of value in it? And mostly it's just more like recognition, like, Hey, this person's doing a cool thing. Go check out this cool person. So does Google approach people to become GDEs then, or is it all driven from the person wanting to be recognized as one? Um, like, which way around it, is that? It's actually done work? through nominations. And that's, um, so a lot of times, I think, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I think it can be nominated through Google developer groups. And often uh, GDEs will kind of nominate like people that they think are, are contributing a lot to community um, as well. So it's all done through nominations. And certainly like, so if you want to be a GDE um, and you're really into the community, you should definitely like kind of like, Either if it's through like your local GDG, or if you like a, if you approach, you, you can probably like approach another GDE if that's your goal and and kind of work towards that. Um, there's not a lot you can do to kind of get in there. It's not like a certification or anything where you know you take a test and and you get the certification. It's more like through nominations and and kind of like going through a, a process. How involved in um, the GDG? It's lots of acronyms flying around. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, how, sort of how involved in this process are Google? You mentioned that they do sort of do some sponsorship, but I, but did they also do some of the coordination? So if 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 I was running uh, a, one of the drive meetings and I wanted somebody to speak, could I reach out to Google and they might recommend a GDE or they might get in touch with a GDE and say we've got this meetup and it'd be great if you could go and talk. I'm just trying to gauge how involved because in my experience, mm-hmm. Apple are very hands off with the iOS community. And whenever they do run anything, it's always something that's run by them and outside of WWC, it's often behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had the, uh, at the beginning of the year, we had the, the WatchOS meetup uh, or the, the session and I went down to London. Uh, but again, it was like, you had to apply to get a ticket. It wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just a social event where anybody who was interested in that technology could go and learn like a meetup is. And, you know, we, we had to go through the whole lottery of getting a ticket and um, and it was a lot more formal. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the approach that, that Apple take, whereas Google seems to be a lot more casual and a lot mm-hmm. more laid back. And so I was just wondering how sort of hands-on they are in these in these events and, and regards coordination as well. So for Google developer groups, they're pretty independent. Um, they don't, like Google doesn't really do much hands-on. Like there's not a lot of strict, I guess, guidelines on what they can do or what they should do. Um, they do su- provide support, like I said, for like the GDG, like DevFest. And I, I believe that sometimes like if like there's new information, like I think sometimes they disseminate it uh, through the GDG, but but Google developer groups are very independent. Like the people who organize it um, have, take charge of running it, take charge of like scheduling speakers, and getting the word out. So it's very much, you'll get like support from Google for like certain, certain of the big things and you'll get like information. And there are actually like summits where the different developer groups will meet and then like Google will kind of like discuss. I've never actually been to one, so I can't say, but they do have kind of like conferences where they bring 
the Google developer groups from all over the world together and they kind of like dis- discuss different things in the community. So there is a kind of sense of like, well, if you're if you're running a, a Google developer group, you're pretty much like you're independent. Um, it's up to you to kind of keep it going, keep it active and keep it, you know, keep the events coming. But for big things like a dev fest, you know, they'll they'll support you through that. And then also, again, you know, like we want to keep everyone on the same page and keep everyone like together. So every now and again, like for at different periods of the year, they'll have like kind of these summits to bring all the GDG organizers together. You know, we're here for you. But and in terms of like kind of asking people like to speak. So again, like the Google developer groups, as much as like the regular kind of independent meetups are very like self-driven, you you will actually see Googlers attending, you know, different uh, developer groups and meetups. But all of that as far as I mean, from my experience and, and, and from what I, I can see, is all driven again by the organizers themselves. Like you don't have to apply to Google to get you know a Googler to come speak. You just ask them, and of course, like the Googler probably has to have you know permission depending on what they're talking about to, to attend and, and talk. But um, usually, it's, again, it's all just hey, if there's a Googler like in your area near your local meetup and they have time, can you come and like speak on this thing? And if they can, they will. And in, and in that way, as with Google as an organization, it's a little more kind of like hey, we're here, but it's more more like, you know, kind of like self-driven, but in terms of like individual Googlers and kind of like people like um, involved in Android in particular, um, it can be a lot more kind of on the side of the organizers and to network and, 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 and do the legwork there. So, but in that way, it's also very open as well. So like, you know, feel free to like ask someone to like come and speak and if they can, uh, hopefully they will. Um, if we sort of shift it from, you know, getting out and, and talking to people face to face and learning sort of. Um, while you're in the same room as, you know, tens or hundreds of other mm-hmm. Android developers. Because obviously not everyone's going to have one of these these meetups locally. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the problems that I faced when I first got into iOS. You kind of heard online about, you know, all the sort of, you know, NS meetup and all, and all these other kind of Cocoa-based or iOS-based and Objective-C back then when I first got involved mm-hmm. meetups. But there wasn't anything like that that was local to where, to where I am. So mm-hmm. either it meant sort of once a month or, you know, once every couple of weeks, traveling quite far, you know, and, and then you've got to think about coming back as well. And if you're at work and, you know, it, it could run into the early hours of the morning, depending on how far you've got to go. So you kind of shift your focus online. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering uh, for those people that perhaps either might not even feel as confident to go, to get to go out and, and talk to other developers and, and meet other developers in person, what sort of stuff exists online for the for the Android community? Oh, so, I mean, I think in the Android community, we're extremely lucky in that for for a software development platform that Google has a very good um, online presence. Like, I personally feel like the documentations are, are pretty fantastic. And they're very active these days. The developer relations team is very active on YouTube. And they have a really great channel called the, well, it's, it's the Google Developers um, YouTube account. I think that's like the channel name. But they, they produce a lot of really great content, kind of like really kind of short, very consumable videos about various topics in Android. So like a lot of, so like lately they've probably been putting out a lot of information about the different like components and APIs that were announced um, about like Firebase and there's like a whole bunch of series uh, based around like design patterns and performance matters like perf matters has kind of like been a big theme uh, the Google developers um, YouTube channel so I, I would say like definitely in terms of online Google has put up a lot of great like documentation tutorials there's like code labs that a lot that kind of give you hands-on projects that you can do on your own to like learn different facets of android um, development so i think they're like google does a pretty good job there are lots of other kind of like sites as well like 
and I, I mean, like, one I'm going to mention now, a lot of them are kind of like paid sites. So I know like Pluralsight does like a lot of training. RavenLights.com has like tutorials uh, as well. And then uh, there's actually a site. So also like, I guess, um, <laughs> uh, caveat here is that I actually um, uh, are also participating in the site. There's also a site, a uh, new site called Caster.io, which is like a video site where you can pay a subscription and kind of like also watch like short videos on kind of different topics in Android as well. And then kind of just like, again, um, online, the community is really broad and very active. So if you just get on Twitter and start following like people that you may have heard of in the Android community, everyone like in the pro like there's tons of people in the community who write tons of brilliant like blog posts like explaining like different libraries different facets different trends different architectures that are going on and i think the community itself is like the strongest resource that you have you just kind of have to get online and find people but people are just extreme like developers are extremely active in the community and there's just a lot of great content it's just kind of i guess get a feed of it going and consuming it but yeah just start like finding people like cool people that you've heard of uh in android and just follow them and then follow people that they follow and then like and you'll start seeing like blog posts and like um videos of presentations from from um speaking coming out and yeah it's just there's, there's actually a lot out there a lot of it is not structured and formalized but it's there's a ton of it out there when android wear first came out i mean um i'm quite i was quite excited about the wearables when they when they first appeared um the apple watch and the android wear i had the moto 360 i found the dev bite series on android wear on mm -hmm. youtube to be to be brilliant um and then also one of the other ones that i always remember i've just i've just been looking now on youtube and i can't find the videos because there's actually so many videos on there when we're about out of time but i just wanted to give you a quick chat did we cover everything you kind of wanted to talk about or is there anything else um, you feel our yeah. listeners should know so I, I didn't get a chance to kind of like one of like my favorite topics uh in the community is conferences um and they're a little bit more difficult you know, rather than meetups, because meetups are very local, conferences tend to be like all over, but there's an amazing conference scene in the Android community. And a lot of it kind of grows around the GD, the Google developer groups. So like, I could probably just like tick off really fast some of my favorite conferences and, and conferences that people should know about and be interested in. So like, of course, everyone knows Google IO. It's like a developer conference, but a lot of it's about product launches and the sessions are pretty, very centric around like, oh, here's this new thing. And here's like all these cool things that you'll get soon. Um, but there's a lot of other fantastic conferences. So like one of the biggest network of conferences in Android is called DroidCon. Um, it started in, nine, in 2009 with Berlin and later that year in London. And it has basically exploded in the last couple of years to kind of be just everywhere. So they ended up in Brussels and then Bucharest. There's like a DroidCon Bangalore. There's a DroidCon Tunis. There's a DroidCon Tel Aviv. There's a DroidCon Dubai. There's a DroidCon in New York and San Francisco and Moscow. There's just, it's all over. And it's a great network. Um, again, um, I think DroidCons are pretty, like, also, like, can be very independently started up. And around, around DroidCons, you'll see a lot of the same people you'll see at GDDs, and you'll see a lot of GDEs. And you'll also see a lot of Googlers as well. They're really great. Um, there's also the EndevCon, the EndevCon conferences, which are kind of more training-related. They're in Boston and Santa Clara in the U.S. Um, and, and rather than just having technical sessions, they'll have, like, tutorials and, and kind of, like, more hands-on kind of workshops. And there's a ton of like great independent uh, conferences. Um, and a lot of those, again, are kind of just things that people start in their local group and then they kind of bring up. There's like a great conference I went to was Droid Kagi in, in Tokyo, Japan. Um, there's also the big Android barbecue, which started out as a bunch of Android enthusiasts 
throwing throwing a barbecue in their backyard and has become like a kind of like multinational event. They have one in Texas. That's the original. And now it's like actually has like the Google developers organization behind it. And now there's one in Amsterdam. Um, a really interesting one that I want to mention just because I'm on uh, this podcast is 360 and dev. And for anybody who's an iOS developer, that might sound vaguely familiar because <laughs> Um, 360 Andev is is kind of organized by the 360 Conferences organization, which also does 360 iDev, and which I believe also um, kind of assists in RDB uh, DevCon. Um, and it's a great conference. It's thrown by uh, two friends of mine who live in Denver, who are also both GD, GD, GDEs, um, Chiki Chan and Dave Smith. And again, it's another great independent conference where you know you have Googlers coming to do the keynote, as well as great local speakers. Um, Kelly Schuster, another GDE in Denver. So if anybody's interested, um, you should go to that as well. And just in general, I think like I have to hand it off to a lot of the Googlers, especially the Googlers on the engineering teams and the developer relations teams. Like if you go to these conferences, you'll see them and you'll be able to go up into them and talk to them. So people like uh, Chet Haas, who's on the who's the lead of the UI Toolkit team, uh, Romain Guy, who's been like working on Android like since before there was a 1.0. Uh, people like Chris Baines, who works on the AppCompat library. Uh, Nick Butcher, who's a great designer, a design developer dev advocate. Um, people like uh, Wojciech uh, Kalczynski, I hope I'm saying that right, Boris Farber. Um, who are both in London, who you'll see at the European conferences, and great people from the developer relations team like Joanna Smith and Ian Lake. Any of these people, you hear these names and you go and you see them at conferences, you can definitely go up and chat with them, ask them questions. Um, and and I have to hand it to them, along with the great kind of like kind of community type people like the GDEs, the GDG organizers, and other people you'll meet. Um, I have to give my hats off to those Googlers as well for just being in the community as well. It, it just kind of feels like Google is there. You know what I mean? Like you're never like isolated. You get to see these people and ask them questions. And and, you know, it's, it's all there's just like so many different parts of the community that you can take advantage of and that you can be a part of. So but yeah, that's kind of my spiel um, on that as well. <laughs> all right. Well, before we move on, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. Hired is the platform for the best iOS developer jobs. Candidates registered with Hired receive an average of five offers on the platform, all from a single application. Companies looking to hire include Facebook, Uber and Stripe. With Hired, you get job offers and salary and or equity before you interview, so you don't have to waste your time interviewing for jobs you might not end up wanting. And of course, it's totally free to use. Plus for you, our listeners, you will receive a $2,000 bonus from Hired if you find a job through their platform. Just for signing up using the show's exclusive link, hired.com forward slash Ray. Thanks again to Hired for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendlet.com podcast. All right, Mick, your time starts now. I'm going to pass it over to you. Okay, so Ray is always keen for us to, like, whatever we're working on, sort of behind the scenes at Ray's Wear, um, if we can take those learnings and apply them, you know, either to raywendlick.com or in this case I'm going to talk about, or I'm choosing to talk about something I'm working with in Ray's Wear on the podcast because it also does apply in some part to, to iOS. And we kind of said that when we moved into this, new direction about you know having a, a platform specific episode each episode that we would always try and um, keep some ios content in there as well um, i'm going to talk about this technology called turbo links now this uh, comes from a web framework that's what it was it's built around uh, called rails which is uh, written in in ruby another programming language and it's we're doing some stuff behind the scenes at Raiseware to improve the experience of the site and um, for you know the experience for video subscribers and a lot of this will be revealed in in the coming weeks and months. But um, 
something sort of stood out to me as I started working with this technology back in in March, and and it's kind of really got me motivated and excited. Um, but just to sort of set the scene and, and sort of build a picture of what it is that I'm going to be talking about, you'll remember that when the iOS SDK first arrived, and um, because the sort of the precursor to that was was web apps, that was in the very first generation of um, the iPhone. We didn't have the SDK, we didn't have the App Store. Jobs was on stage, and it was kind of the add to home screen. So you you provided a little icon, and and then you know you you tap that icon, and it would actually open a browser. Uh, but then people would build would use that to sort of build these uh, sort of web. Uh, iPhone apps rather than native iPhone apps and then once we got the SDK um, sort of developers kind of split off and on one side you went people that went and embraced the native side and learned the SDK and then we had other people that went off and what mainly started out as, as open source projects and then have since been acquired um, you, you had things like PhoneGap which then went on I don't know if it got acquired but it moved into the, uh, the Apache Foundation and became Cordova Th- those were kind of retain that methodology of writing the entire app in uh, in javascript and html and css and sort of the web technologies that you were used to uh, and we saw that you know as the platform grew um co- bigger companies were, were kind of leaning more towards that side because it you know it had faster iteration you didn't have to go through the the app review process all that kind of stuff and, and you know most famously probably would be would be facebook because when they first shipped their app it was all html5 and that's what they pushed and um, they have since obviously gone back completely the other way and gone completely native um so if you imagine sort of on on a scale on on one end of this scale we've got full native apps um and then on the other end we've got these sort of hybrid web technology apps wrapped in a in a very light native container then turbo links especially the uh, the iOS part sits somewhere in the middle uh, but before we get into the the iOS part I just want to talk a little bit about what turbo links actually is and what it does I'm sure everybody's familiar with with the sort of the term the one page web app and this is where um, to try and speed up and, and provide a much richer experience uh, web apps kind of moved everything client side. So the server would serve this one HTML page and there would be a ton of JavaScript that sat behind that page. And the JavaScript would do all the communication with the server via Ajax and the communicate via JSON. Um, and that really took off sort of a couple of years ago. Uh, but TurboLinks is kind of a slightly different take on that. So TurboLinks makes sort of you navigating your, your web application much faster. and you get the performance benefits of these single page applications. But what it actually does is rather than sort of having to build your application on one of these uh, client-side JavaScript f- frameworks like Ember or Vue um, and sort of learn all their the sort of uh, the design patterns and the paradigms that they use, it allows you actually just to serve up straightforward HTML um, as, as you would with, with a standard website. But what actually happens is Behind the scenes, when you click on a link to go to a new page or to take an action, TurboLink um, hand like blocks that from from following its standard process and uh, kicks off its own internal process. And what this actually means is that it goes off to the to the server, fetches the new page via via AJAX, but it's still the standard HTML page. And then the page that you've already got rendered in your browser, it swaps out the body tag and it merges the tags in the in the head. So what this means is that rather than having to render the entire DOM uh, completely and incur all the 
performance penalties that that does. You've already got the DOM in memory, and by swapping out the body tag and merging the head, um, it, it, it's almost like loading the full page, but you don't incur the cost of loading a full page, so it makes your web apps feel so much snappier. And like I say, the way it does this is it intercepts all the clicks on, on links that are on the same domain. Obviously, you can't do that when you're, when you're going to go out to a new domain. It prevents the browser from following that link, and instead it, you know, it um, loads the, the page and does this swapping. And then it also makes use of the new uh, history API. So it does some caching. Um, and then, again, with this caching, what actually happens is um, it allows your browser to... It allows the experience of the browser to remain the same, so your forward and your back buttons work just as you expect. But what actually happens is when you, for instance, you hit back to go back to the previous page, it will serve the page it's got locally in its cache immediately whilst in the background going off to the server to make sure nothing's changed. And then it will merge those changes in when they come back. So again, you get this um, perceived performance improvement because you're getting this almost real-time page being shown and then the, the, the changes merge in, in later. And it's it's a little bit difficult to explain with because it, it's very visual. But I definitely, you know, for people that are interested in this to go check this out. But uh, so we're using this on the, on the, web, on the website uh, for some of the new stuff that's coming up. And it is, it is incredibly impressive. But what I thought was, was really good when I started getting into TurboLinks is that they actually provide an app. Uh, well, they provide two adapters, one for iOS and one for Android. And what this allows you to do is if you've got a TurboLinks enabled site, then it gives you the sort of the tooling to wrap that uh, that uh, TurboLinks enabled website in a in a native iOS shell. Uh, so straight away you might be thinking, well, you know, that's what we talked about, what talked about before, and there was all sorts of issues and performance problems, and you know, things didn't feel native, they didn't look native. But this is slight. This is like the next generation of hybrid app. Uh, and the way it does this is it manages a single um, WK web view, which is a new WebKit stuff we got in iOS 9. So they got rid of the the old browser technology that, that um, was always a, a problem in terms of memory and, and that kind of stuff. And they gave us this new lightweight performant uh, WK web view. So TurboLinks is on the cutting edge in, in, um, in that term. And what it does is... You start off with a session, and you you tend to create this session in your app delegate, and it's the session that manages this single instance of a web view. But what when you um, sort of navigate around using view controllers as you would in a normal native app, the session um, manages swapping that that web view. So you it doesn't matter how far you go into a navigation or what um, controllers you're throwing up on screen it will always be that one single instance of the web view. So so that's how it keeps memory usage down and keeps everything performing. And what this allows you to do is sort of have fast and efficient hybrid apps. And you avoid reloading the JavaScript and the CSS um, every time this comes up because you're saving memory by sharing this one uh, instance of WK web view. What it allows you to do in terms of deployment and delivery of, of an app is it, it's very quick to market. So, you know... You, like I say, we're working on the web end, um, you know. We're, so we've already crafted out all our HTML, and and we've got this web app that works and is 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 almost ready to be deployed. By using Turbo Links on iOS or Turbo Links on on Android, 
it allows us to deploy them uh, onto those platforms as well as into mobile browsers at the same time and we don't have to worry about uh, the App Store approval process to ship new features and that kind of stuff. What we can do uh, with the adapter that you could never do with things like Cordova is that you can actually enhance your the stuff that the web server is serving up with native UI. So uh, there's a demo on their uh, GitHub repo, which I will will make sure all the links go into the, the, the show notes about this. And it shows your standard navigation controller, and you know it's going. Uh, you can go in and you can go several levels deep, and all that is standard native UI, UI navigation control, that kind of stuff. But it's actually, you're actually navigating through the pages of a web app. And as each new view controller is pushed on the screen, transparently in the background, that uh, instance of the, the web view is being passed from the previous controller to the controller that's just coming on. And it does some snapshotting in between. Again, that was technology that came, I think, in iOS 8. So even though you are moving views between screens, it doesn't look to the user as though you are. And if you do sort of that edge swipe to go back, there's already a snapshot there before it blends in. And it just feels very seamless and, again, like I say, very, very native. And the way that all this kind of is pulled together and the way that you can mix in uh, your web content with your native content is that you, when you set up this session, that acts as a delegate. And every time you tap on a on a Turbo Links enabled link, uh, like we said, in that that's how it works in the browser, um, it actually calls through to this delegate first and it asks this delegate whether it should load the web page or whether you want to handle it. And this is how you can um, you can then intercept that and you can throw up some, um, some native content. So I've got a, a video that I'm going to put in the show notes as well uh, at RailsConf, which was earlier this year, and it's uh, Sam Severson, who's the guy behind... Um, Turbo Links, who works for Basecamp, which is where Rails came from originally, or the guys that that built Basecamp. Um, he'll he sort of talks through how they use this to deploy their their app into the App Store and how they made the decisions between what should be web and what should be um, native, and then the sort of the patterns that you adopt to to do that. It's a really good session, and it probably explains things a lot better than I have just done in the last sort of ten minutes. As you've explained this, Mick, I, I don't know a lot about TurboLinks, and so I'm, I'm, I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around it. But in, it, what you've expressed so far leads me to believe this is good for apps that are mostly driven by web views. But a lot of my apps, I'll have like just three or four different web views. They're usually like about pages or you know rules, terms of use. You know what I mean? Like I think a lot of apps are mostly native, but they just have they have more than one web view. Um, would it be appropriate for something like that or no? I think it's it's more for if you, if you, if you're if you already have a site and you want to take that site mobile. So yeah, obviously you can make your site available uh, in a mobile format through you know Safari uh, or you know Chrome on on Android or whatever. But what this allows you to do is it allows you to intersperse it with with native content. So to give you an example from that video that we'll we'll make sure goes in the show notes. The Basecamp web app um, has a navigation bar at the top of the, the web app. So just like we do on Ray Wenderlich, where you've got the uh, you've got the tutorials with the with the drop down, you've got the videos link, you've got the link that takes you to the forums. Um, so if you view that in a browser, or you just load that page in a standard web view, then you've still got that um, 
navigation link at the top. <laughs> what this allows you to do is um, you can set a custom user agent. So when that when that request is sent off to the server, the server can go, actually, hang on, this is coming from the, the mobile app rather than either a mobile browser or the desktop browser. Um, so what we'll do is we won't send back that navigation. And then you can then layer on uh, native navigation. Okay. So, so you'd use a tab then, bar instead in that case. Yeah, or okay. you know, or some custom view, yeah. or so it so it allows a much uh, richer and a, and a much more native feel to your applications. But if you're if you're built, so if you're app first, if that's the way that your company works, you know, like we'll put our out we'll put out our app first, and then we'll build a website after, which a lot of people do mobile first. This probably isn't really for you. But if you're an existing uh, website and you want to take that website mobile um, or, you know, you're building something new and you want to make sure that it's available on mobile at the same time that you launch on desktop or whatever, then it's very easy and it's very quick to take what you've done on the website and make it uh, mobile, cross-platform as well. Like I say, it's available on iOS and Android. But with a sprinkling of native so that, you know, it still feels good. Um, you've got all the gesture recognizers to swipe between view controllers. You get that snapshot and you get the animations, you know, so it's not it's not a binary thing where you're either all web app, uh, all sort of hybrid app or all native. It's got it's got this really well-balanced mix. Um, and, it, and sort of the example that they give is they compare the size of the Basecamp team or the Basecamp mobile team to, I can't remember what the other company is that they compare it to, but basically this other company make a native iOS app, a native Android app and the website and they have this humongous um, you know, development team. And then the Basecamp web app and the Basecamp iOS app and Android app and they give you a figure around how many sort of active users they've got across and it's very similar to this team in terms of how many people are using their products but their development team is just like a half a dozen people and it kind of shows how quickly you can take something that you've built on the website and make it available cross-platform on mobile still whilst getting that native or some native feeling um, but you're not, like I say, it's not this binary thing where you're all hybrid or you're all native. In that example that you use where on raywenderlich.com we have this navigation bar, which is very, you know, lots of sites have this, and you would you'd replace that in an app with an, a native control. Is that just the way the, the framework is set up and how, again, this is coming from somebody who's not a web programmer. Is that something where you would need to have thought in ahead of time as you're building the website like this is a component i might not include in a web enabled version of this or is that usually is are things usually structured in such a way that that's relatively easy without having to anticipate it well yeah it's definitely the latter i mean so the stuff that we've we've done because we kind of discovered this early on in the process of the work that we've been doing at raiseware behind the scenes um it's always something that i've had in mind Right. Partly because um, it allows us to get something to market very quickly um, while still having that native look and feel. But also because this is something that excites me and it's something that I want to dig around in deeper. But we haven't actually built in that functionality with the custom uh, user agent to serve a slightly different version of a HTML if it's coming from 
a mobile app as opposed to a mobile browser or a desktop browser. But to retrofit that once we're ready to adopt this technology is relatively straightforward, especially if you're using something like uh, Rails. So TurboLinks is a core component of Rails, and it's kind of built and designed to work within that um, framework, but it can be used outside um, with a, like they do, there's, there's um, instructions on the on the repo about how you can set it up with all different types of frameworks, uh, Ruby frameworks, or things like Node, um, because it's all a lot of it's JavaScript based, uh, and it and it all runs on the client side. But what you get when it's built into Rails is you get the the automatic handling server side as well. All right, well, um, we're out of time, Mick. I'm going to cut you off there. Um, thanks again for joining us, Wynn. Oh, thanks so much for having me. As always, if you have any feedback or comments on this episode, please do get in touch with us uh, at podcast at raywinderlake.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywinderlake.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.